The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. If you could, uh, take your Bibles, uh, turn in them to Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 22. Uh, Again, we're in this, uh, start this series entitled The Places of the Passion. And uh, Luke chapter 22 will begin to outline that for us. It speaks of uh, Judas and his agreement to betray Jesus. And then also um, Jesus giving in some instructions to his disciples about the preparation for the Passover. Luke chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests... And the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asked, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared uh, the Passover. What I'd like to circle the thought around this evening is this idea that uh, Satan schemes, does he not? But uh, Jesus always wins. Maybe you know it in your life. Maybe you've experienced even yet, uh, you know, this afternoon, today, that Satan is a schemer. And he fights and he prowls and he comes against you or those that you love. And you're hoping to hear the good news that there is one more powerful than him. And the scriptures testify to that, that Jesus always wins. Martin Luther was fond of referencing that idea this way. He says... Take heart that though the devil is master of a thousand arts, God and his word is master of a hundred thousand more. In other words, when the devil comes against you, it's just not as if God matches him, but God, what? Overpowers him. He consumes him. He rages. Yes, the devil does rage against us, but we have a God and the word of God which fights in such a way that he overpowers the schemes of the evil one. Let me just give you a couple uh, as examples. And we'll just use this as basically an Old Testament survey, just quickly in about you know, a couple minutes. Well, when Satan brings sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3, does God just match him force by force, or what does he do? He promises. He promises that there will be a seed coming from the woman, the virgin birth. And that seed... The serpent will strike at his heel, but in striking at that heel, mortally wounding the seed, the head, the authority of the serpent will be 
crushed. And you see that all coming to fruition in the death and the resurrection of Christ. Satan brings in, God promises, a Savior. Satan enslaves, but God frees. You think of Joseph. He is sold into slavery by his brothers, sent off to Egypt, and you wonder what is going on in this story. But it is through God's providence that God sends Joseph to Israel, um, to Egypt for a purpose, to save the, the promised seed. So when there's a famine, he's the one who tells the Pharaoh, gather all the grain and store it up. Satan enslaves the children of Israel. But God sends Moses, and they flee, and they come to the Red Sea, and what happens? Thinks they have it all blocked off? What does God do? Opens the Red Sea, and he drives the Egyptians into the water, and not just kind of matches them, but overpowers them. And on the other side, they're singing the song, the horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. In the wilderness, Satan deprives, but what does God do? Every morning, they get up, and there's manna, there's quail, there's water, water from a rock. Satan leads and uh, leads astray, and he scatters the people of Israel. They're adulterous in their faith, leaving their husband, the God that cares for them. But what does God do? God calls them back. God runs after them. God searches. God finds. Jesus says, Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy. What does Jesus say? I've come that you may have life. And have it to the full. Satan prowls, but Jesus protects. Satan prowls, but Jesus protects. So it's as if the schemes of the evil one are always coming against Jesus. And he always wins. Fine, get Jesus to the cross. Crucify him. But guess what? In his death and his resurrection, the head of the serpent is crushed. Fine, persecute the early church. But you know what you do with that? What do you do with that? You scatter them throughout the... You scatter them out throughout the world. Even to you, come against me. You think that the suffering that you bring me will turn me away from God? And every one of you probably can give witness to this. What happens when God is at work in your suffering? Do you turn away from God or does that turn you towards Christ and you fall towards him? Even in your death, you think that perhaps maybe the devil is scheming and is one. But what has he done? He's just simply ushered us into the presence of Christ. And so you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is the gain. Satan schemes, but Jesus always wins. Here's some verses. Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph. They come to, his brothers come to Joseph thinking that now he's going to drop the hammer on him. And what does Joseph say? Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You meant it and you intended it to harm me. But God did something in it. God had intended all of this for good to accomplish what is now happening, which is the saving of many lives. We got the promised family, the promised seed into Egypt. They're not going to die off with the famine because God so worked it out in such a way that something bad was meant for Joseph and God turned it all around into the devil. How about this one? John chapter 11. Caiaphas, the high priest... They're troubled about this Jesus. They don't know what to do with him. He says, well, it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. In other words, let's give this Jesus up to the Romans. That way we're going to have peace here. It's better that one man die than all of us perish. 
Now, note there what the scriptures say. It says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Caiaphas is, thinks he's speaking about something up here. It's good. We've got to get rid of this man. It'll bring peace to Israel. The Romans will leave us alone. And what is God saying through this high priest? He's prophesying that there is something far greater going on. Yes, it's good that one man die for who? For all people. For all people. We're in Acts chapter 5. Religious leaders are upset about these apostles. They don't know what to do with them. They think, well, let's flog them. Let's tell them not to speak about Christ. There's one wise one that stands up and says... Leave these men alone. Let them go. If what they're doing is from human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's from God, you're not going to be able to stop it. In other words, the devil might scheme, but Jesus and his kingdom always wins. Which finally then brings us to our everyday reality of suffering and pain in this world. And you know the verse. Say it with me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. The devil does scheme, but somehow, in God's sacred way, in his divine economy, he turns it all around on the devil, and Jesus wins. Now, we're not going to be outwitted by this evil one. Corinthians, Paul says, Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Let me give you two schemes which uh, you can trace in the Passion Uh, passion season. The first scheme of the devil is to get Jesus away from the cross. The second scheme is, well, let's get Jesus to the cross. It seems like there are two competing schemes, right? Well, here's the problem. The devil knows that he is defeated and he is desperate, so you'll see him trying to do one one day, another the other day, go back to the other one, go back and forth. He can't figure it out. He's a loser on the other end, right? Get Jesus away from the cross, get him to the cross. Now you see this in Peter and Judas. Within the company of Peter and Judas, the disciples, the devil is scheming and the saying goes, well, where Christ wants to build his church, what does the devil do? He builds a chapel right on the same site. Right on the same site you have Judas and Peter. The inner circle. Christ is trying to build his church. And there the devil is about his work, building a chapel. The two schemes, you see it played out, first of all, with Peter. Let's get Jesus away from the cross. Now, it begins in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus starts his ministry, he's led out into the wilderness, tempted by the evil one three times. Right? If you're really the son of God, he says, do what? After fasting 40 days... Take these stones and turn them into bread. If you really are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this high place, this temple place, and God will send his angels to protect you. Bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all of these things. The devil's voice is ringing out as Jesus starts his ministry. If you are the Son of God, and what is he trying to do? Get him away from the cross. Bow down to me. Indulge your flesh. You see it in Peter. 
Pastor Casiglia talked about it last weekend. This confession of Peter. You are the Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon. This wasn't revealed to you by men, but by my Father in heaven. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. I will rise again on the third day. Peter doesn't hear the rise on the third day part. Jesus pulls, he pulls Jesus aside and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say back to him? It's as if he looks right, be, you know, right through Peter and sees who's behind him. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, the things of men. Let's get Jesus away from the cross. The same Peter's in uh, the sense of uh, puffed up with pride saying, you know what? Even if all of these are going to fall away, I'll stand by you to the very end. I'll fight for you. And sure enough, in the garden, what does he do? He pulls out the sword, cuts off Melchus, the servant's Melchus ear. Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. This is devil's work. You are trying to get me away from the cross. Even at the cross, what are the voices saying? At the end of the temptation in the wilderness, it says, the devil left him and angels came and attended Jesus. And it says there that the devil left him for an opportune time. What is the opportune time? This crucifixion. Because all of a sudden you start to hear the same phrase from the crowd and from the thieves on the cross. If you really are the Son of God, do what? Come down from there. Save yourself. You saved others? Why don't you save yourself? Scheme one, get Jesus away from the cross. We see scheme two beginning to be played out in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Let's highlight some verses. It says there the chief priests, the teachers of the law, were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus because they were afraid of the people. He's being followed. Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money, and he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Well, Satan does know the soft spot for each one of us, right? And Peter, it's his pride. It's his sense of action, control. And Judas, it's his love for money. In fact, the story goes when Jesus was anointed by that woman, Judas is there saying, why are we doing this? You could have taken that perfume and you could have sold it for a year's wages and it could have gone to feed the poor. But then the text says, he said this because he was the one in charge of the money and he liked to help himself to the what? To the purse. To the purse. Get Jesus to the cross. Chief priests, teachers of the law, they need someone to be the go-between. They find Judas, who's more than willing, probably thinks he's a little bit harmless anyways, and they hand them over to Pilate and Herod and the Roman rule. Now Jesus, if you read the Gospels, you'll find five times he talks in this type of language. I must what? I must go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. Look for it as you read the Gospels. He's very clear. This is a divine 
must, a necessity. He must go to Jerusalem. He leads the way to the cross. Don't let anyone fool you of this idea that somehow Jesus is dragged there or is forced to go or is coerced, or is pushed, or is led there. In fact, if you watch the passion of the Christ this Lenten season, you'll see that no one is really pushing Jesus anywhere. He's taking up the cross and leading the way. Jesus leads the way to the cross. The devil schemes to get him away from the cross, and then he says, let's get him to the cross. Well, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must now, Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13, speaks of this preparation period for the Passover. The Passover is when you sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, right? And the angel of death, what's the word? Passes over. Passes over because of the blood of a pure, spotless lamb was shed. What is the Passover in the Old Testament speaking about? Just the crucifixion of Christ. The angel of death passes over us because the blood is shed on the wood of the cross. They're about to celebrate this, this Passover. Verse 7, it says, The day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And they have questions. So where are we supposed to do this? What preparations? Jesus replies, Well, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat this Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make pre preparations there. And what does the text say? They left and what? They have any troubles? Found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So let me ask the question. How long has God been preparing the Passover lamb? How? Since, did you say since forever? Absolutely right. Since forever. Revelation says, belonging to this lamb that was slain from what point? From the creation of the world. This is not an accident. This is not like plan B. This is God's plan from the very beginning before you and I were ever born, before we even existed or took a breath, God was planning this Passover lamb to be slain. And Peter, no matter what he does, God redeems it. And Judas, no matter what he does, God redeems it. Because though the devil schemes, who always wins? Jesus always wins. Now there are casualties in this conflict, though, isn't there? Peter denies Christ. Three times, this bold Peter, who's not in any way humble, stands up and says, I'll never do it. And three times he denies Christ. It's interesting to note that later when Peter writes a letter, he has this phrase, he says, God opposes the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. It's as if after a number of years of reflection, he says, God is the one who opposes pride, but he gives grace to the humble. How does Peter know that? Because he was humbled. He was humbled. He denied Christ. You and I, in our words, in our actions, 
We deny Christ, do we not? Or if maybe we don't deny him physically, in our pride, we puff ourselves up to point and say, well, I am better than at least them. If they do all those things, I'll never do that. What does Peter do, though? Peter repents. And note where he runs. Peter repents and runs to the cross. Peter repents, repents, and he receives the forgiveness of sins. And Peter repents, and he rejoices. And does Peter fall again? Yes. But he repents, runs to the cross, he receives forgiveness, he rejoices. The same one who denied Christ three times was told by Christ, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my flock. Three times the Lord Jesus restores him. Second casualty is Judas. We get an understanding of what happened with Judas in Matthew chapter 27. It reads this way, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So let me just ask you, on the basis of that word from Scripture, is Judas full of remorse and repentance and sorrow over his sin? Absolutely. See, any different than Peter? Peter just denies Christ. What does Judas do? Well, he schemes and he sells Christ out. But both of them have this remorse. In fact, so much so that Judas says, I got to do something about this. And what does he do? He takes the blood money and he brings it back to the ones who had arranged the whole plot and says, Let's stop this. I betrayed innocent blood. To which they say, well, what's that to us? That's your, your responsibility. There's no returns on this money. And what does it say? So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. He hanged himself. Judas, Peter, deny, betray, sells the Savior out, runs away from the Savior. But there's a difference between what Peter does and Judas does. Both repent. But Judas repents, but he turns to his own works. Right? He turns to his own works. He says, I have sinned against God. I have betrayed innocent blood. But let me fix it. This is works righteousness. This is, I know that I'm against God, but maybe somehow I can earn his favor. Maybe I can make it right. Maybe I can redeem the situation. Maybe if I just try hard enough or maybe give of myself or have the right motives, then God will you know, bring me back to himself. And all of us do that. All of us do that. Judas repents, but he runs to the wrong tree, doesn't he? He runs to the tree in his despair. He hangs himself. He repents, but he fails to receive from Jesus the forgiveness of sins. See, confession consists of two things. First is that we confess our sins, but then also that we receive forgiveness, right? And so we're never left to just to confess and then wonder, does God forgive me? Am I right with God? That's that monster of uncertainty. If it's based on you, you are always uncertain whether you've done enough. So God points us outside of ourselves to his son, the Lord Jesus, 
says, be certain of this. Run to that tree. Run to this man. Your salvation is about works. But it's not about your works, is it? It is about the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus upon you. The work of Jesus upon me. Taking upon ourselves his holiness and his righteousness because he has taken upon himself our sins. Jesus uses this imagery of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. He says there's husbands and wives, there's the bridegroom and the bride, and the church is the bride and the groom is Christ. And so the image is when you get married, what happens? Whatever you have as the groom and whatever you have as the bride becomes mutual property. In this case, the bride gives to the groom all of her sin. And what does the groom do? Gives to her all of his righteousness. All of his righteousness. In order to do that on this Ash Wednesday, we have the imposition of ashes. And it comes in the form of a cross, comes in the form of ash or dust, because from dust you were taken and dust you will return. The wages of sin is is death, and so you have a mark of death upon yourself. I have a mark of death upon my forehead. But it's in the sign of a cross. It's repenting of those sins. A contrite heart. But it's then, then saying, I have nothing to offer God, but I need to receive everything from him. I need that great exchange for him to give me his holiness, and I will simply receive it. And you receive it by faith, which, by the way, is who's doing? That's actually God's doing and gift to you also. And then what happens when you receive it? You overflow in your heart. And there is this rejoicing that occurs. And then your whole life is lived repeating that cycle. This evening you're going to receive uh, from Jesus, it's his supper, his body, his blood for the forgiveness of sins. You come, you come bringing your sin. You come in faith, understanding that Christ himself wants to offer himself to you, give to you the forgiveness of sins. And then with the attitude that I'm going to walk away from here, my heart filled with joy because of what Christ has given to me.